Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Roaring recovery, retail sales soar, and U.S. banking earnings boom. Crypto craze, Coinbase valued at $86 billion in its NASDAQ debut, and a rather pricey pixel. Sotheby's enters the NFT fray with a $17 million haul. We've got the CEO. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move. Fantastic to have you with us for another jam-packed show. Coming up this hour, the latest on crypto's come-out moment with Coinbase's explosive gains on its first day of trade. As I mentioned, its valuation now dwarfing the valuation of the Nasdaq exchange that it trades on. We'll discuss shortly. Plus, more bank blowouts. Citigroup and Bank of America announcing stellar Q1 results. City's new CEO, Jane Fraser, hitting the ground running too, announcing a massive global consumer banking retrenchment. All this amid a very strong batch of U.S. economic data too. Retail sales spiking near 10% in March, fueled by the arrival of those $1,400 stimulus checks and perhaps more importantly, the lowest reading since the pandemic began for U.S. jobless claims still rising, let's be clear, by some 576,000 claims last week, but a clear sign perhaps that the economy is beginning that process of healing overall. U.S. futures reacting positively to this explosion of information and data. Europe also higher, as you can see, the German DAX hitting fresh records this session. We are well and truly bringing it back to fundamentals this Thursday and banking on a more positive post-pandemic outlook, fingers crossed. Let's get to the drivers. Paul and Monica joins me now. Paul, walk us through some of these banking earnings, very much tied to what we're seeing in terms of the economic data flunk. We've got loan reserve releases, which are helping here, but strong performance in investment banking once again. Exactly. I mean, we talked about this yesterday with uh, JP Morgan Chase and Goldman Sachs, obviously the trading arms, particularly for Bank of America, really helping fuel some of these strong numbers, but also Bank of America and Citi releasing those loan reserves, just like JP Morgan Chase and Wells yesterday, a reflection that the worst case fears that these banks had about what COVID-19 would do to the American economy and the American consumer and those loans they did not come to pass. So that's why you're seeing banks releasing those loan reserves that's helping to boost profits. And as you pointed out, I mean, city CEO Jane Frazier, a nice start for her in her uh, first official earnings release as the uh, chief uh, of this company. Yeah, talk about what's going on there, because this is a whopping retrenchment. This is her moment to kitchen sink if she wants to. And it does look like what we're seeing is a pullback on some of their operations in Asia and also Europe too. Exactly. I mean, I think when you look at Citigroup over the years, 
this has been a bank that is known in the U.S. as being one that has the most global tentacles, if you will. And I think they're starting to chop some of those off. Razor realizing that maybe the company only needs to be in some areas where you have affluent uh, consumers. As she put it in the earnings release, they're doubling down on wealth. So while they're pulling back in many markets, they're not going to do so in places like London and Hong Kong and the UAE, global wealth centers. So I think that's going to be fascinating to watch as City evolves going forward. I think they're really going to focus a lot on the U.S. core franchise. They're not going to give up on the affluent parts of the world, but they are pulling back in many other markets where you know they might not be able to really sell as many investment products to those consumers. And very quickly on these guys, what about the lending outlook? Because that was what came through from JP Morgan as well. Some cautiousness over just what kind of pickup we see, whether it's commercial lending or uh, personal consumer lending. What did these guys have to say on that? Yeah, but lending is obviously still a bit of a concern because you had that pickup in rates in the, the first quarter. But most of the uh, bank executives at City and uh, B of A, again, stressing the fact that Rates still remain low historically, and you have all this stimulus coming in, a better U.S. economy, that should increase demand for loans, even if those loans are slightly more expensive than they were during the darkest days of the COVID-19 recession. Yes. Paul Monica, thank you for your analysis this morning. Let's move on. Coinbase enjoying a wild debut on the Nasdaq Wednesday. The crypto exchange had an initial valuation of nearly $100 billion dollars. Just to be clear, that's more than the oil giant BP, but it did pull back a bit to close with a mere valuation of around $86 billion. Claire Sebastian joins me now. I'm sneakily smiling as I'm using those words. That is 10 times the last valuation that it got in the private market when it was raising money, Claire. I mean, these are monster numbers. And the crypto community, I think, smiling with glee this morning. Yeah, it was a glittering debut, Julia, by, by any estimation, came out of the gate very hot at, at $381. That was uh, a 30% premium on the reference price of $250 that we got from the Nasdaq. At one point, it reached almost $430, so an enormous amount of range within the trading as well yesterday. But as you say, it fell back to around $328 uh, at the close, giving it a valuation of almost $86 billion dollars up again i will say about six percent pre-market this morning so the exuberance is not fading but but one thing i wanted to look at Julia, is did we see any kind of halo effect uh, around other crypto exposed stocks we've seen a lot of adoption of course in the last 12 months the likes of square paypal tesla uh, microstrategy which is the business intelligence software company that owns a lot of bitcoin there was no halo effect those stocks pulled back fairly significantly in some cases, perhaps because they've seen a big run up, perhaps because Bitcoin also pulled back a little bit yesterday, as did Ethereum. But I think from that, you can see that there is still a lot of volatility in the space, a lot of linkage between the price of these stocks and the price of Bitcoin. And that is certainly something to watch going forward when it comes to Coinbase. That's interesting. The microstrategy one is interesting, I think, mostly because if you were buying into microstrategy because it was a way to get crypto exposure via stocks, then Coinbase arguably provides diversification potential here. So perhaps that's what's going on there. Mm. Just for now, direct listings, though. The key here is that there's no lockup period either. So I wonder how this performs going forward, Claire. A lot of exuberance on the day perhaps calmer heads prevail, particularly given it's tied to crypto. So what happens in digital assets 
the likes of Bitcoin, Ether will also, mm. at least in the short to medium term, also drive the share price surely too. I think that's going to remain the key to, to, to how to understand this stock, Julia. I've been looking at some of the price targets. We've got one of 500 over the next 12 months, one of 600. So there is still a lot of upside. But I think the big question comes around what happens after that. We're clearly still in a bit of a Bitcoin and crypto bull run, and that will continue to drive Coinbase and other crypto exposed stocks. But, but is this a cyclical uh, sort of cycle that we're in with these cryptocurrencies? Could we see another 2019 perhaps uh, next year where, where they pull back and that will then pull down some of these stocks? So I think when you invest in something uh, like Coinbase, it, it, it really depends how long you want to be in there. If you take a long term view uh, in the future uh, of cryptocurrencies, you might want to stick it out for a few years. But I think looking at today and looking at what we see in those other crypto exposed stocks, it's still going to take a bit of a strong stomach. Yeah, I know what the crypto community think. You will have inflamed them with that 2019 comment. Wait till this hits social media. <laughs> Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. All right, let's move on. Escalating tensions between the United States and Russia. The Biden administration imposing sanctions on Moscow in response to the alleged SolarWinds hack and election interference. Nick Robertson joins us with the details. Nick, great to have you with us. And actually, the Biden administration tackling that front on in this announcement. Just talk us through the announcement today and uh, what it means in terms of sanctions and restrictions. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that it means, and I'm leading with this first before I get to that detail, is what we've just heard from the Russian foreign ministry saying that undoubtedly there will be a response from Russia. Um, essentially, sanctions will be met by sanctions. So, so what are we looking at here? Well, the Treasury has issued a directive that's going to prohibit uh, U.S. financial institutions from um, being involved in ruble to non-ruble bonds. Uh, in essence, and you'll understand this much better than me, um, this is going to make it much harder for Russia to do business in dollars and get hand, get 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 um, get dollar get their hands on dollars, I guess is the shortest way of explaining it. When it comes to what's being done beyond that, 10 Russian officials from the embassy in Washington are being expelled. We're told some of those are intelligence officials. Six tech companies uh, are being sanctioned for their involvement in uh, cyber hacking and solar wind. 16 individuals and 16 entities um, are being sanctioned for their involvement in trying to influence the 2020 elections. The US government has come out now and formally said that the essentially that these entities and, and individuals are part of a Russian government operation, saying that it was the SVR, Russia's Foreign Intelligence Service, sort of through its proxies, APT-29, which is also known as Cozy Bear, and the Dukes were actually the ones responsible for trying to influence the US uh, elections. There's also been sanctions put on five individuals and three entities for the annexation of Crimea, including abuses inside of Crimea. So this is a, a quite extensive list by the Biden administration. Um, we've heard from Anthony Blinken today saying that this is to hold, you know, to show the Russian administration that we will hold them accountable, which was something that Biden had said uh, that he would do during his election campaign. Um, as I say, from the Russian Foreign Ministry, the spokeswoman there saying there will be and do expect a response from this from the Russian side. Yeah, and we've literally just had it, Nick, as you've been speaking from the Russian Foreign Ministry. They held a media briefing in reaction to these US sanctions. The message here, Washington will pay the price for the degradation of relations. That's the message. Nick, what do you make of that? Perhaps not. No surprise. 
no surprise. Look, uh, the fact that President Biden called President Putin before this, clearly Biden knew this was coming and clearly he is developing a line of communication, direct communication to President Putin that, essential, that will have essentially underscored the message that we're we are responding to what you've done, um, but this is not the end of uh, the, the road for in terms of sort of dialogue and cooperation that we can get beyond this. Um, uh, you know, it was interesting when you read the tweet from a senior Russian diplomat at the UN overnight saying essentially at the end of that tweet that by pushing forward with these sanctions, the United States is sort of missing an opportunity to, to, to avoid a, a superpower confrontation. But it's, it, was, it was his last words, not our choice, that really strike home, because in essence, it's saying we're the victim, whereas the message to Moscow is, in fact, you've done this, you've been warned not to interfere in, in presidential elections, you did it in 2016, you went ahead again and did it in, in 2020. The solar winds hack got into nine uh, federal institutions in the, in the United States, close to 100 business entities were affected. Russia was on notice not to do this. And this is the response that 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 was essentially predictable and Biden said that he would do. And this is the consistent message that Biden wants to send to President Putin. Step out of line and we're going to respond. Don't think about how we'll respond or if we'll respond or what we'll do or what we'll say. There will be a response. And, and this is it. Hmm. Nick Robertson, great to have your context. Thank you for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. The US Secretary of State has made an unannounced visit to Afghanistan less than a day after President Joe Biden said he will withdraw troops from the country. A few moments ago, he reiterated the president's statement that the US will remain committed to Afghanistan. All of us, it's been a, a long journey to this moment. There is a great deal of work and planning to do in the months ahead to ensure that the withdrawal is responsible deliberate and safe. But that work is going to be matched by our enduring support for Afghanistan economically, diplomatically, politically. The European Medicines Agency is expected to issue a recommendation on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine next week. But for now, regulators say the benefits outweigh the risks. Sweden and Spain have both received the vaccine but are not administering it yet. However, France says it is. Melissa Bell joins us now on this. Melissa, once again, unilateral action from individual nations taking a stance. This time it's the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Before, of course, it was concerns over AstraZeneca and blood clot risk. And I note yesterday as well, Denmark coming out and saying they're no longer going to be using that vaccine. It's a real mess. It, it, it pretty much is, Julia. Country is really going it alone in the face of these doubts. Uh, first of all, over the AstraZeneca, now scotched by the European Medicines Agency. But as you say, Denmark saying, look, we simply don't need it for the rollout of our vaccination program. They are the European country that has fared best in terms of getting their population vaccinated with 8% fully vaccinated now in Denmark. They're simply putting it aside. Here in France, those 200,000 doses of the Johnson & Johnson, one of those rare European countries saying, look, we're going to go ahead and administer them along the same lines as we 
are already administering the AstraZeneca, that is to people who are over the age of 55 because of those fears of the very rare cases of blood clots in people who are younger. All lies very much, though, Julie, on what the European Medicines Agency has to announce next week because the Johnson & Johnson is such a crucial part going forward in these coming weeks of the Europeans' overall vaccination strategy. Now, we've heard in the meantime from the uh, president of the European Commission, Ursula van der Leyen, who's uh, essentially said and reconfirmed, reaffirmed today by a spokesman of the European Commission, that with those doubts over AstraZeneca and uh, the Johnson Johnson for the time being, the European Commission is very much going to focus on trying to find new contracts with Pfizer. This is, as uh, the European Commission have called it, the backbone of the European vaccination strategy. And they're looking at a third contract with the company because its rollout has gone so well so far. Also because Pfizer have come up with the goods delivering an extra 50 million doses of the vaccine for April, exactly when Europeans need it the most. So uh, the European Commission really focusing on that, on those vaccines where contracts have already been successfully signed, where deliveries have been insured and where there are no doubts about safety at all, Julia. It's okay if you're a nation that has alternative options and turning to Pfizer, but as we've talked about many times before, for the emerging markets for poorer nations, AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, given the handling of these vaccines, and in the Johnson & Johnson case, the fact that it's a one-shot vaccine, it's critical not to damage confidence in these vaccines without material evidence of, of real concern. And when you look at the numbers that we have so far, um, the handling of this, it feels, has been poor. The communication on this has been poor. Communication, which was all the more important, Julia, in a part of the world that is famous for being vaccine hesitant. Here in Europe, it had been a concern even as these first vaccines became available. And of course, what we've seen is the changes, the contradictory advice, the changing advice on the AstraZeneca uh, hasn't helped. And now, of course, these concerns over the Johnson & Johnson that may well be fixed by next week if the European Medicines Agency decides, as it did with the AstraZeneca, that the benefits outweigh the risks and that it can be delivered safely uh, to Europeans. But in the meantime, there is the problem of vaccine hesitancy and perhaps even more fundamentally, there is the problem of vaccine supplies. There were 360 million doses of vaccine expected here in Europe for the second quarter. Uh, crucial vaccines, given how slow the vaccination rollouts have been so far and given how difficult the COVID-19 figures continue to be in so many European countries, of those 360 million, 200 million were of the Johnson & Johnson. Europe needed these vaccines. A pause in the rollout is catastrophic, not just for vaccine hesitancy, Julia, but actually physically for the supplies that are at the disposal of Europeans already. Such a great point. Melissa Bao, thank you so much for your insights there. Let's move on. India reported a record single-day rise in COVID-19 cases on Thursday. The 200,000 new cases are more than double the number reported in Brazil. Millions of Hindus are gathering for a month-long religious festival where they will bathe in the river Ganges and attend prayers. As Vedika Sood reports. India crossed two grim milestones Thursday. The country surpassed 14 million confirmed total cases of COVID-19. It also crossed 200,000 new daily cases for the first time since the pandemic began. The health ministry has also reported over 1,000 fatalities for the second consecutive day, the highest this year. Due to a continuing surge in cases and shortage of beds in hospitals, India's national capital region, Delhi, and financial capital, Mumbai, are now converting hotels into makeshift hospitals. A day after Delhi reported a record daily high. The Chief Minister Arvind Kejival has announced weekend curfews. 
Over the last week, several other states announced partial lockdowns. India has the second highest confirmed total cases of COVID-19 after the U.S., according to data from the Johns Hopkins University. Vedika Sood, CNN, New Delhi. Okay, still to come on First Move, can the United States and China find common ground on climate action despite clashes over tech, trade and Taiwan? We'll have the latest on the Shanghai summit and NFT fever. Blockchains on the block as Sotheby's sells its first NFT art work. <laughs> we speak to the CEO. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and what a busy day it's been so far. Strong corporate earnings, strong U.S. economic data, all that leading to strong futures tech set to bounce back by some, uh, what, 1% here after a 1% pullback yesterday. Markets boosted by a better than expected read on U.S. retail sales and the lowest rise in U.S. jobless claims since the beginning of the pandemic. From the banks as well, Citigroup and Bank of America on track for early session gains after reporting earnings, with Citi outperforming up some 2.8%. Citigroup's new CEO, Jane Fraser, announcing a global consumer banking overhaul to help boost future profitability. Bank of America, meanwhile, announcing a $25 billion stock buyback program and releasing more than $2.5 billion set aside for bad loans, helping earnings more than double in the quarter. Joining us now, Brian Belsky, Managing Director and Chief Investment Strategist at BMO Capital Markets. Brian, great to have you with us. Let's talk macro and then we can talk some micro. The backdrop here in terms of recovery, strength in the US economy seems to be accelerating. It really is, Julia, and thank you so much for having us. We'd like to go back and remind investors that really the formula for investing, stocks, lead earnings, which lead the economy. We had unprecedented moves in prices with respect to the stock market around the world in 2020 in both directions, Julia. That was followed, obviously, with a very sharp move in both directions in bond prices. Now we're seeing unprecedented earnings rebounds to the tune of 25 to 30 percent on a quarter over quarter basis with respect to the U.S. stock market. And then we think that's going to translate onto the last part of the equation, an unprecedented move in the economy. And we're starting to see incremental data on a weekly, monthly, and quarterly basis that is following suit with that. And I do believe that also just adds credence to what Chairman Powell from the Federal Reserve is saying in terms of his interest rate strategy going forward. And I know a lot has been talked about in terms of no interest rate increases in 2021, but we continue to believe that it's not going to be until 2023 uh, until the Fed starts to be become more aggressive with respect to its change in tone in terms of interest rates. Is that still the worry, though? The biggest worry that you hear from investors is what happens if the Fed starts to single or perhaps that they're going to move on rates or even that we see these sort of jerky rises in interest rates from investors, no matter what the Fed's saying. That jerky rise uh, comment, I think that's a technical term, but you're actually right. I think investors <laughs> are, are reacting too much to the quote-unquote jerky rise in interest rates. And a little higher interest rates means a little inflation. A little inflation means pricing power. I think the problem, Julie, is that so many investors are too deep in the books in, in terms of academics and quantitative measures. And they maybe learned in business school that inflation is bad because they go back and look at the 70s and 80s. For all intents and purposes, inflation was squashed 
squash in 1982. And aside from some jerky moves in inflation in the last 40 plus, oh, almost 40 years, we haven't had sustainable inflation for a while. And I think that's going to continue, especially with capitalization rates, uh, cap U rates, and how we've become excessively efficient. And that's where technology comes in. And that's why technology as a sector uh, is one of our three favorite sectors over the next three to five years, the other two being communication services and consumer discretionary. That jerky, by the way, comes from the Julia technical uh, textbook, which clearly needs some dusting off and, um, and uh, adjusting of, of language, but it works. Talk to me about what it means, because I know you have done the data analytics of what those movements higher means for stocks when you're looking at interest rates and also what the performance is for the second year of a bull market run when you've had one year that's been so incredibly strong. And for stock market investors that are willing to buy and hold, it's positive news. It is positive news, and I'll, I'll go back and, re, and review with your reviewers that we've been on, on record by saying U.S. stocks entered a 20-year bull market in 2009, and the reset of the bull market happened in March of, of 2020, and so the second half of the bull market is upon us. It looks much different than the first half, and so what the second half looks like is much more stock picking, much more fundamental. And what we've learned in our research going back at several other secular bull markets in the past, the second year following a big first year, which obviously last year was, uh, can be quite positive. And I think too many investors right now are too set on trying to build uh, build out their framework in terms of being too short term with respect to calling the end of the bull market or a deep correction. No one should ever try to time the market. They should be an investor. And I think that's why uh, U.S. stocks and Canadian stocks, by the way, are a close second in terms of the best assets in the world from an equity perspective. So investors should be compiling their assets and diversifying their assets on pullbacks and maintaining core positions with respect to U.S. stocks, we believe for the next three to five years are going to continue to lead. And what do you make of the Coinbase IPO? Some are calling it a come out moment for, for crypto, that this is defining it now as a, an asset class of its own. Brian, what do you think? I'm not quite sure crypto is an asset class quite yet. Uh, I think it's an instrument. Uh, I'm a little worried from the momentum side of things just because of how markets have run. And so I think we can take a look at Bitcoin or crypto in, in general, Tesla, uh, maybe some other names that have clearly been more GameStop, been more momentum than fundamentally driven. Remember, if you go back to 2017 and 2018, when supply dried up uh, and, and demand, I'm sorry, dried up, significantly in crypto, prices fell. So we need to kind of endure a deeper correction, we think, in crypto before we kind of believe that it's a standalone asset class. I think it's too soon to say that it's an asset class. Hmm. Interesting. Brian, great to have you with us as always. Brian Belsky, Managing Director and Chief Investment Strategist of BMO Capital Markets. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are, as expected, on the rise in early trade, boosted by a second round of strong earnings from the U.S. banking sector, as well as a fresh round of encouraging U.S. economic data. U.S. retail sales spiking by a greater than expected 9.8% for the month of March, and U.S. jobless claims rising by 576,000 people last week. It's a bad number, let's be clear, but it is the lowest reading for those jobless claims since the U.S. lockdowns began. 
Now, Coinbase also higher in early trade after rallying more than 30% on its Nasdaq debut yesterday. Bitcoin slightly higher, as you can see, just for a comparison point. Now, America's climate envoy is in Shanghai for high-level talks on global warming amid rising tensions with Beijing. Earlier, John Kerry met with his Chinese counterpart to find common ground between the world's two biggest carbon emitters. It's taking place as an unofficial U.S. delegation is meeting with Taiwan's president to discuss China's military activities. CNN's David Culver is in Shanghai for his David. Great to have you with us. The backdrop doesn't get more complex. I think Taiwan, perhaps the biggest catalyst or tension point between these two nations, but without them on board with climate change, progress is going to be tough. What can be achieved here? Julia, this really is a diplomatic dance that's playing out right now. And perhaps this is what could be the matter that distinguishes the Biden administration from its predecessor, the Trump administration, in that you have so many different issues, as you and I have talked about on many occasions, the rising tensions on so many different fronts. This might be the one issue, talking about combating climate change, that could actually be where the two countries agree. And that could benefit the rest of the world. Two sets of American diplomats, one group to Shanghai on the Chinese mainland, the other to the self-governed island of Taiwan, both visiting the same country, China's government would say. For the United States, it's more complicated than that. The U.S.-China relationship is quite fraught, but no issue is more dangerous than that of Taiwan uh, because it is the one issue that the two countries could go to war over. In Shanghai Thursday, John Kerry, President Joe Biden's climate envoy, engaging with China on what Washington insists is a, quote, freestanding issue. The fate of our planet not linked, the White House says, to the fate of Taiwan. That's where an unofficial delegation, including former U.S. Senator Chris Dodd, arrived Wednesday. We are here today at the request of my longstanding friend, President Joe Biden, to reaffirm the U.S. commitment to this partnership. Thursday's meetings come just one month after high-level talks between Beijing and Washington broke down in Alaska. Observers fear that U.S.-China relations are at an all-time low. That's partly over Taiwan, now facing increased Chinese pressure, militarily, economically, and diplomatically. All designed by Beijing to nudge Taiwan and its people towards reunification and to prevent independence. I would also like to take this opportunity to thank the Biden administration for reiterating on numerous occasions the importance of peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait. Like much of U.S.-Taiwan relations, this trip is considered unofficial. It's been carefully staged to appear that way. Underneath, an unequivocal message of support. This administration will help you expand your international space and support your investments in self-defense. The Biden administration will also seek further deepening of our already robust economic ties. That help could make it harder to get Beijing to back Biden's climate agenda. China has already made stern representations to the U.S. side over its sending of personnel to Taiwan. On climate, China is the world's largest producer of greenhouse gases by a long way. The U.S. is second, making the two countries crucial partners in any effort aimed at reducing emissions around the world. The challenge for both uh, John Kerry and his Chinese counterpart, Xi Jinping, uh, is to create this special climate change collaboration lane uh, in the midst of a highway, uh, which frankly, all the rest of the traffic is blocked. 
uh, or engage in collisions. Whether he will be able to keep climate separate from sticking points like Taiwan remains to be seen. These high-level talks between John Kerry and his counterpart here in China, Xie Jinhua, are playing out ahead of the Biden administration's planned climate summit. It's going to be a virtual one. It's happening on Earth Day and it's going to continue for two days. And some 40 world leaders, Julia, have been invited to attend, including China's leader. But it's not yet clear if President Xi Jinping will join. Meantime, Chinese state media is coming out with a strong message here. They are suggesting that this was an invite to the U.S. on China's behalf to bring John Kerry here to start these talks and that it shows China's willingness to engage in how to combat climate change. And they're also pointing out, Julia, that China will not be forced, particularly by the U.S., into any certain direction here, that it's going to be based on cooperation, collaboration, and the two countries working together. Hmm. As diplomatic dances go, David, a quick step for sure. Mm. David Cover there in Shanghai. Thank yeah. you. All right, coming up after the break, digital art. Would you pay $1.4 million for this? Well, someone did. The CEO of Sotheby's will explain the magic of monochrome after the break. Sotheby's can think outside of the box. It raised around $17 million in a three-day sale for a mystery digital artist called Pack, called the Fungible Collection. This was Sotheby's debut in the world of non-fungible tokens, or NFTs. Interestingly, Sotheby's chose the online auction site Nifty Gateway rather than selling in-house. Buyers snapped up nearly 24,000 of these called Simply Cube for a combined value of $14 million. These are the Switch and the Pixel, which sold for $2.8 million combined. We don't know much about PAC, but the artist did thank everyone afterwards. Charles Stewart is the CEO of Sotheby's, and he joins us now. Charles, fantastic to have you on the show. I have to admit, there will be people watching this going, what on earth? Will you please just explain why Sotheby's is embracing this technology and this market? Absolutely, and thank you for having me on the show. Um, NFTs really burst on to... Uh, the mainstream consciousness over the last few months. And I think there's a lot of people um, who are from outside the digital and crypto worlds who are struggling to understand uh, what this what this all means. But um, we moved into it because we believe that there is uh, long-term um, implications and opportunity. And one of the most exciting things is that we are accessing an entirely new audience and, uh, and group of artists as well. And that was very much uh, on display in our sale over the last three days. I mean, the big difference, I think, just in terms of the technicalities between what we've seen Christie's do, what we're watching Philips do, of course, two of the other big auction houses, is that they did this in-house. You decided to go to the online auction, Nifty Gateway, and there were some technical challenges. Why did you do that? We decided to uh, to partner with Nifty because um, they are really a leader in this emerging in this emerging space. They have all the tools to uh, mint uh the, the wallet and payment features and, you know, and they're well established. So it was a natural partnership from our standpoint, I think because of the scale of, of interest. I mean, this was groundbreaking in lots of ways for them as well as for us. Um, you know, we, we did see some challenges, but really, I think overall, it was an enormous, uh, enormous success and kind of a breakthrough in many ways. Who's buying 
the art, Charles. You said you're opening up a new market. Who's buying? Because even when I look at some of the art and the sales that were made, the pixel that, that Pack created, it was sort of two buyers, really. And I've heard from the industry people saying this is just a group of somewhere between eight and ten individuals that are snapping all this NFT art. Is this the sort of democratization of access to this form of art and this form of market? Or is it just, you know, to those crypto community people that are involved in this, just... I don't know, creating some kind of bubble around the sector. There's definitely there's definitely a strong connection with crypto and the crypto community. But I would tell you across our three days of sales uh, with these pack objects, we had over 3000 participants uh, in the sale. Um, and of course, when you're talking about the two one of one works that sold for the higher values, ultimately, like most um, you get down to a couple of determined bidders who are who are trying to win it. That was the case here as well. But actually, the overall level of engagement was enormous, uh, you know, and thousands and thousands of people paying close attention. Do you expect there to be a secondary market here where people sell this art on? Because that's one of the things we talk about with, with NFTs, this idea that you've enshrined ownership and you can sell this on and then the artist itself gets a cut of the proceeds when it's sold on. Do you expect there to be a, a secondary market? There absolutely will be a secondary market for the units. We sold nearly 24,000 of these units. And so um, in the coming days, they will trade in the secondary market. Um, I think the smart contract and blockchain technology is one of the most um, compelling and interesting um, aspects of innovation in this space. And that's got implications for um, how creators uh, connect with their audiences. Um, and obviously, the idea of creator co-economics is a really powerful um, element to the whole uh, digital art and uh, blockchain uh, uh, you know, platform and experience. Where do you think it goes? Because for the traditional art market, and I speak to those who are part of that, they look at this and they go, I don't understand this. I don't know what it means. Uh, what is art if you can't hang it on your wall or appreciate it? They're sort of mind boggled by what we're seeing here. And Charles, how do you explain it to those people, to those more traditional artists, to traditional buyers of art? Sure. Well, first of all, you know, our business is, you know, almost entirely in the in the physical art community. And and, um, right. uh, and that will continue to be the case for the foreseeable future. But I will say that uh, we believe this new audience and community who are large, uh, it's a large community, they're passionate, they're engaged, um, that's been really interesting to see to see spring up. I mean, there are analogies you can make to the rise of street art in the 70s and 80s. Um, digital art in 2021, um, you know, maybe to 2021, what street art was to the 1970s. <laughs> I think for, um, for the crypto community, it's a validation of the technology, to your point that you were saying about smart contracts. For <clears throat> artists, perhaps it's a validation of, of their craft. So it's in some way, resetting the economics. Do you think going forward, the answer perhaps for the Damien Hursts, for the cause out there to do physical art and to digitize that art and sell them together and just say, look, we're catering to whatever you want. You get both. You definitely will see some of that exploration and crossover, but I don't think you have to see that convergence in order for this to be a relevant um, a platform and, and community and, and growth opportunity. I will say that, um, you know, the blockchain and digital art has been around for years. Uh, it's only come onto our consciousness right now 
uh, because of the uh, inflow of money and attention. And I think that's why there's so much attention being paid right now. You know, I, I don't really have necessarily a view on the uh, the value side of it, but just as it as an artistic uh, as an artistic uh, statement. And you know, the the this is these are passion uh, you know objects in a passion category, just like physical art is. And I was interested that you know one of the collectors in our pack uh, in our pack um, auction over the last few days said something along the lines of you know for pack is my Picasso. Um, and so I think that, you know, there is, uh, this does speak to people in the same way that physical art speaks to as, you know, has always and can, will continue to speak to audience as well. How big might this market get? Fast forward five years. Where is the think, NFT art market? I think it's very, very early. And uh, the market clearly is... Um, uh, is volatile. Um, it's linked to the value of crypto. If you tell me where you think the value of crypto is going, um, then maybe I could give you a, a more informed uh, view on that because for the time being, they are linked. But what I think is is really more interesting and, and pervasive and powerful and here to stay is the idea of, um, of the blockchain uh, ownership and authentication this potentially has implications for physical art as well as uh, as well as digital art, and I definitely think that, irrespective of the ups and downs of 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 the primary and secondary markets in a monetary sense, that this category uh, will continue to grow and develop over the over the years ahead. How much of this art, and I'm going to put you on the spot, what percent of the art that's selling today do you think will be worth more than it was paid for today in five years' time? And that's a contemporary art question too. <laughs> I, I I don't I don't know the answer to that. I, I think you know we we really focus on collectors who buy things because the object speaks to them because they love it, uh, whether they ultimately own it, you know, for one year or fifty years or a hundred years, um, and whether the value goes up and down. I think you know the real power of art is. Um, is unlocked when you start with that, you know, that first, that first connection that a collector has with the work of art. That's true in every art category, physical, digital. Um, and so again, I, I don't really, I don't really know. I'm sure there, there are plenty of people who are speculating just because of all the focus um, and thinking about it, you know, in, in more financial terms. But um, hopefully, the people who buy and own these things believe in them, love them, want to own them for a long time. You know, we'll see if that ends up meaning that um, that they have more value in the future. Someone needs to create a digital art museum, I think, to display these things, and then we'll really get a sense of it. Charles Stewart, great to have you with us. Thank you. The CEO of Sotheby's there. Thank you. All right, coming up, will the Tokyo Olympics be cancelled? The top Japanese official dropping a bomb on a hot-button issue. That story, next. Fresh controversy over the prospects for the Tokyo Olympics after a high-ranking Japanese official refused to rule out the possibility the Games will be cancelled. Selena Wang joins us live from Tokyo. Selena, great to have you with us. As we were discussing yesterday, kind of impossible to rule out the risk of cancellation here, but now this official walking back or clarifying, let's call it, those comments. 
Julia, that's right. I mean, first of all, it is extremely rare to have a Japanese government official publicly addressing the topic of canceling the Olympics. This is very much seen as a taboo topic that officials have been avoiding. And so Toshihiro Nikai, he is a very influential member of the Japanese government. He is a secretary general of the ruling party. And he was asked in a local TV interview if it was a possibility that the Olympics could be canceled. And he said, of course, it's a possibility, even adding that, quote, what would be the point of an Olympics if if it spreads the infection. And Julia, as we've been discussing, this is the very question that many people in Japan are asking. These games are extremely unfavorable among the Japanese public here. As COVID continues to worsen in Japan, the country is struggling to contain this fourth wave, which many experts say are driven by new COVID variants. And as we talked about yesterday, less than half a percent of the Japanese population is fully vaccinated. Now, you did have Nikai later watering down his comments, not totally walking them back, saying that he is still hopeful that the games go off successfully. But nonetheless, his comments did release a firestorm on social media. You had cancellation of the Olympics trending on Twitter after his comments came out. Julia? Yeah, I mean, it's really tough. It's tragic. All that work that's gone into it. But you have to be safe and secure. And that's the bottom line. Selena, if that was trending on social media, what are people saying about the likelihood that the games do in fact have to be cancelled given the situation there and do we have any sense of when that decision might ultimately be made? Well, Julia, nobody has any idea in terms of when this final decision could be made. Many were expecting that in March we would figure out if the final decision would be made, but we still have some basic details, such as how many spectators will be allowed in the venue that will be allowed, which yet to have been announced. But at this moment, what is clear, though, is that these comments from Nikai show that the situation here in Japan is snowballing. What he said is in contrast to the official statements we've been hearing from the prime minister, the Japanese government, from the International Olympic Committee, who thus far have only expressed complete confidence that these games are going to go ahead this summer. In fact, in response to these comments from Nikai, the Tokyo 2020 Organizing Committee said that they are still fully focused on planning these games. And you'll remember that very recently, the IOC said that there is no plan B when it comes to the Olympics. Now, it's definitely a rock and a hard place for the Tokyo Olympic team. They have, <laughs> Japan has spent billions of dollars on this. Sponsors have spent billions of dollars on this. Japan does not want to lose face. So we still have to wait and see, Julia. Yeah, it's a tragedy for whoever was dealing with this. And it just happens to be the Japanese. Selena Wang, thank you so much for that. Okay, that's it for the show. Thank you for watching. Stay safe. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.